Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Constant social media checkers experience higher stress according to the American Psychological Association. Parents are struggling to supervise children's technology. People are drowning in dopamine overloads because of too much time on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram and other platforms. Joshua P. Hotchchild is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland and he's here to discuss digital distractions in our modern age. Josh is the co-author of the book, A Mind at Peace with Christopher Blum, drawing on the wisdom of the world's greatest thinkers, including Plato and Aristotle. Josh says a mind at peace can show us how to cultivate the qualities of character you need to survive in our media-saturated environment. And he is my guest coming up. Very, very wealthy people, privileged people, create space where there are no smartphones. The best private schools have strict rules about when and where students can, can have That's interesting. Phones. I believe the, Steve Jobs, the, the late Steve Jobs, didn't let his kids... The, that's right. The people who designed it don't, don't want their kids using it. People who go to um, uh, fancy, expensive summer camps, yeah. part of the reason they do that is so that, so that their, their kids have time away from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this technology and and people who can afford to want to go on retreats and vacations where they can leave this. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. I hope you're all well. We have a great interview coming up with Josh Hotchchild of Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. He's the co-author of A Mind at Peace from Sophia Institute Press. The book is about our massive digital distractions today and more. Before we get to my interview with Josh, I want to remind you of a great new podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations, with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. The latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations is called the Great Reset, and it's up there on Apple and Spotify and on all the good platforms. Who doesn't want to know more about banking and the economy as we see soaring prices and inflation and rising interest rates? The whole nature of the economy will change. A Great Reset will in fact occur, says Odeon Capital Group's Dick Beauvais. He adds banks will be significant beneficiaries of this change. Audience Capital Conversations is hosted by yours truly. And before we get to my interview with Josh Hotschild, we have the first installment in our Future Shock 2.0 series presented by Ira Wolf. He's an author, workforce trends expert, and top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR. Future Shock 2.0 is about business and workforce trends caused by the convergence of people, business, and technology. 
Ira Wolf, welcome to Future Shock 2.0. Today you're going to talk about labor force trends. What do you see out there? Wow, that's a great question. Great to be back, John. Uh, labor force trends, they're going to be different. Uh, I describe the world as never normal and things are going to be perpetually never normal. As we move back, we talk about future shocks. Certainly uh, both workers uh, and employers are feeling that they're pretty stressed out. Uh, where things are. If we look at the great resignation, uh, we have a record number of people that are quitting their jobs every month. Uh, people are waiting to get back to normal, settle down. And yet, uh, despite the fact that our economy our economy is growing, uh, but we're, we're obviously with the, the war and inflation and things, we're, we're at risk of a recession. But it's odd. It's really, really odd because the economists are not predicting a a slowdown or an increase in the unemployment rate. They're, they're talking about a decrease in the unemployment rate. And uh, in fact, I just read this uh, report just came out the other day from the conference board. It stated that by early 2023, the unemployment rate is going to dip below 3%, below 3%. And that's even, I mean, it just, just was released. Uh, so they're, they're taking into account uh, some of those trends. Uh, we're going to have a prolonged shortage of labor of workers. Now, it's it's not going to be universal. And there are people say, well, we're not experiencing that. Well, it's going to be different. It could be different geographically. It's going to be different by different uh, jobs. There are certain jobs, especially in healthcare. Healthcare is probably has the most, the biggest risk uh, of shortages uh, long-term. And that affects all of us. We can't get to the doctors. We're all getting older. Uh, we have emergencies. Uh, we experienced a lot of that during the pandemic. That's only going to increase. And a lot of the providers that we have are baby boomers and they're retiring. And then a lot of healthcare is certainly stressed out and people are going to leave that. But we look at uh, manufacturing. You know, re One of the reasons we have semiconductor shortages, which affects everything in our lives, is because they don't have enough people to be able to do the job. They don't, Or if they have enough semiconductors or, or any type of technology, they can't get them delivered. They're sitting on ships. They can't get them delivered to, to the depots. Uh, there's shortages on grocery shelves, not because there's not a shortage of food. Last two years, Years ago, we had a shortage of toilet paper, um, but now most supplies are are sitting in warehouses or on trucks somewhere because there's not enough truck drivers. So the labor shortages, uh, although healthcare is going to be most impacted, manufacturing, production, and the trades. And what's crazy is, uh, and I know we'll get this into this a little bit into the specific industries in future shows, but the, the number of jobs that need to be filled by people who don't have a four-year degree is we are in a huge hole, a huge deficit. And we have more and more people graduating. There's a 2% increase in the population that, that has a BA degree, a bachelor's degree. But the number of people who have high school degrees is exploding, only high school degrees, but they don't have the skills that are required to do the jobs. We talk about construction and construction is not just swinging hammer and, and using a saw. We're talking about uh, HVAC, plumbing, uh, electrical, welding, and all those jobs are technically technical jobs these days. When your HVAC guy comes to check out your air and heat pump, it's yep. a computer that just happens to be pushing through air. So we are going to have really severe uh, shortages, labor shortages uh, for the foreseeable future. There's going to be a couple pockets that aren't too bad. And if you're in one of those, lucky you. 
Um, but for anyone who's got certain sets of skills, it's going to be your, your day. And for employers, it's going to continue to be tough. My guest is Joshua Hotchchild, who is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Mount St. Mary's University. Josh is the co-author of the book, A Mind at Peace with Christopher Blum, drawing on the wisdom of the world's greatest thinkers, including Plato and Aristotle. Joshua says, A Mind at Peace, published by Sophia Institute Press, can show us how to cultivate the qualities of character you need to survive in our media-saturated environment. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Josh, welcome to my show. John, it's a privilege to be here. Thanks. And we're on technology this moment, interacting, and your book is about technology on a very deeper philosophical level. We'll get into that in a moment. The first thing that occurs to me is that uh, we've read and we hear about all the distractions caused by digital media today, all the machines, the apps, the Twitter, Facebook, email, um, Instagram. I'm running out of all of these apps, but there's multiple apps out there. We hear a lot of it done wrong can lead to serious depression, uh, dysfunctional family life, creates havoc in our society, and just creates a kind of madness, if you will. So I'm kind of curious as to what your book is really going to offer to sorting out this whole problem to the debate. As a little bit of context uh, to answering your question about what, what sets our book apart, it's been about five years since we wrote this book. We published it in 2017. And Chris Bloom is the co-author. The, the book was his vision, and, and I was really honored that he asked me to, to collaborate with him on, on writing it. And we, we, when we started writing it, we wondered if people would think we were making too much of a big deal out of, out of social media and, and smartphones. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't yet common to say that, uh, there was, there, there was a deep social problem. Um, there, there were a few people who were starting to talk about it. The American Psychological Association hadn't yet, um, acknowledged that there was, there were connections between, um, cell phone use and anxiety and depression. Uh, pediatricians weren't yet asking parents questions about their, their child's uh, screen time um, and monitoring social media use. Yeah, um, it it was just coming out that some of the designers of this technology didn't let their own children use it, and uh, you know there were a few studies about how social media was affecting um, uh, political civic discourse, perhaps, or how it had an effect on on neurology in the brain. But this this was sort of new. These things were coming out, and now now everybody knows that. Now that's common knowledge. You can't. Um, sort of get attention by pointing this out anymore because it's it's been said multiple times. But what what Chris and I noticed looking around was that there there were that the different approaches to the question always asked it from a particular discipline, right? So the political scientists were interested in it, the sociologists were interested in it, and the, the neuroscientists were interested in it, the psychologists were interested in it. Chris and I are are philosophy professors, um, and we're also uh, converts to Catholicism and, and and aware of the Catholic spiritual tradition. And it struck us that what modern digital technology was doing was raising fundamental questions that used to be considered from the perspective of what's called philosophical psychology. 
What is the nature of the human soul? What are its powers? How are they structured? How are they ordered? What are the virtues that one needs in order for the soul to be well integrated and, and flourish? And so um, we thought that we could use the challenges of digital media to draw on the resources of classical philosophy and, and Christian spirituality. Um, and in a sense, show people that, that there were resources, there was a whole language, there was a whole conceptual framework for articulating the kinds of problems that we were facing and also the possibility for, um, for finding a solution. So I would say that's what, that's what sets the book apart. It's, it's, it's an attempt to understand um, the, the state of modern technology as presenting a challenge to, to, and an invitation to renew uh, a, a classical conception of, of uh, the soul and its order. Wow, there's a lot in that. That's quite deep. Um, so walk us further through that. Do you have problems with technology or is the issue how we use technology? If we don't use it in a certain way, that's a bad thing. If we use it in another way, that will fulfill our souls. Yeah. There's, there's two positions I think that we want to be careful to avoid. We don't want to say that the technology itself is, is evil or bad. Um, we both in our own ways, you know, have, have integrated this technology into our lives and you and I exactly. are Exactly. We're interacting. It's beautiful. Exactly. On the other hand, you don't want to just say, well, it's all about intention. So if you're using technology to be mean to somebody or to harm someone, it's bad. But if you're using it with a good intention, it's fine. Uh, there's there's more to leading an ordered life than just having good intentions, and one has to actually think about the concrete reality of of what your actions are, and also of if if you choose to act in this way, what 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 other actions is that displacing or or replacing? Um, you know, if 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 young people are interacting more on their um, on their digital devices, but actually having less time socializing with each other in person, they might be losing certain social skills. They might be missing out on certain opportunities to, to feel a, a, a different sort of connection as embodied human beings uh, that is also essential to, uh, to human nature. That, that, that's, just, that's just one example. So instead of, instead of saying, well, the, the technology is evil or, well, it's just a tool as long as you use it with a good intention, what we want to say is... Um, it's a technology that gives us a tremendous amount of power. So we have to, we have to think about the consequences of certain kinds of exercises of that power, not, and not just for ourselves, but for our relationships with others and, and in community. So what, 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 what does it mean for a whole community if it adopts a certain form of technology? Um, and, and how can we be the kind of person that will help to build up community through use of technology as opposed to uh, weaken that community? Are you hinting at that society or groups or nations needs to come up with some kind of set of voluntary community standards or, mon or mandatory standards the way we use technology? That is not discussed in the book. Um, the book is really a, a very sort of, it's addressed to the individual um, you could say it's a book of, of uh, practical spirituality or, or, or self-help, but it, 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 it's more about um, helping an individual be more aware and more intentional about their use of technology. But I think an implication of um, our approach, uh, especially given that human beings are social animals and that we live in community with others, um, is that many of the challenges of social media can't ultimately be met by one person 
deciding, okay, I'm just going to live a virtuous life. You, you need accountability. You need the support of, of a, a framework within which your virtuous actions you know, can make sense. Um, so it's very hard just to take a very, very concrete example, right? <clears throat> it can be very hard these days if, if a family wants to um, limit cell phone, smartphone use and say not, not let their children have smartphones. If, if their children go to a school where every other student has a smartphone and all of the social activities that, that, that their children could be a part of imply that one uh, uh, has access, easy access to a smartphone, um, it can feel like you are harming or punishing your child by depriving them of a smartphone. There are countless families who actually don't want their children to have smartphones, but they feel like they've had to provide them because other families are doing it. Mm -hmm. And so it might take the, um, the coordination of a school, of a community, of a, of a church parish community, uh, uh, or, or just a voluntary group of a, a, a critical mass of enough, enough families whose children are friends with each other to say, we will hold the line. We'll, we'll say, you know, no, no smartphone until this age. And, and we'll, we'll, and, and that would make it easier for one family to make responsible choices for their child if they know that other families are cooperating. That's very interesting. So you kind of address that idea in your book? The idea of um, the sort of communal support networks or the, the cooperation between associations and groups is not, is not directly addressed. But it's addressed in this sense that it's acknowledged that we are social beings and that we make responses to choices presented to us by the community that's available to us. And that very often the, the ability to make good choices depends on um, have, having resources around us, a support ne network, accountability, other people who recognize the same goods and want to participate in the same activities that we want to participate in. So I think as with any kind of um, self-help book, right, uh, the focus is on the, what, what's within one, one person's sphere of control, what, what one has the power to influence. But given that we're social beings, there's an acknowledgement that um, it's going to be easier for that individual if they, if they are part of a network of other people who are caring about the same things. So if I read your book or anybody, and I have read, read your book, but if somebody picks it up for the first time, reads through it, what would they come away with? What sort of a message? And how would they, yeah. if they were taking it seriously, um, how would their relationship uh, evolve after that uh, with technology? I think that's a great question. So, I mean, I, I hope some of the answer is captured in the title of the book. It's called A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in the Age of Distraction. So the book is responding to what we assume is a widespread, but maybe not always articulated sense of discomfort or unease, anxiety, uh, distraction uh, that maybe um, we feel like this technology has sort of um, in, impeded itself into so much of our attention that we, we've lost we've lost a little bit of control or a little bit of a sense of our agency that we feel overwhelmed by our email inboxes or um, we're, we're, we, when we try to concentrate we're interrupted by uh, by notifications of some sort or uh, we, we feel like we've lost our ability to retain uh, uh, certain kinds of impressions because we rely so much on having information at our fingertips so we're not exercising our memory in the same way. It, it's responding to, to the sense that, that people feel a need for an, an, an inner 
peace that can only come from an integration and order of our uh, our interior attention. Mm-hmm. So it is about, in a way, it's about the mind regaining a certain kind of discipline and order. Mm-hmm. But we we address the mind explicitly only in the last part of the book. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 book is structured essentially to to carry one through the. A, a, a fairly traditional understanding of the virtues required for a happy life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there, there is a dis- discussion of temperance, the, the ordering of one's bodily desires. There's a discussion of courage, the the ability to uh, withstand, uh, uh, you know, uh, pain and and threat and fear for for the sake of of some worthy cause. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's chapters about um, the the role of friendship in a good life and 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 how one makes oneself capable of of being a friend and worthy of being a friend to others um, in that sense it it's about the kind of basic moral order that one needs in life before one can achieve the the, the deeper interior and and more um, intellectual or cognitive order that that people often feel like they're lacking. So the book is divided into three parts and each chapter uh, begins with um, some sort of brief uh, epigram, maybe a quotation from scripture or from a, a, a saint or, or, or spiritual master. Then the, the, the chapter is meant to be a very accessible discussion and practical discussion of how a particular virtue is manifest in our, in our life, maybe with reference to examples from from literature or from our own experience. Um, and then each chapter ends with a brief meditation. Um, uh, again, usually an, an excerpt from a, uh, some classic spiritual writer or from, from scripture. And then um, a, a series of questions for reflection. So uh, those are almost like a, an examination of conscience, a, a kind of uh, application of the ideas to one's own life, and and what what might I need to work on, or how how might this be relevant to to, to what I'm experiencing? And the idea is that each may, maybe maybe someone reads just one chapter at a time, and then sort of lets it sit for a while. It's the kind of book that we hope would we would be read, and actually has been read. Reflection in in, in book groups, in retreats, as as a as a kind of um, retreat handbook to carry one through uh, a, a progression of uh, reflections on one's interior life. The subtitle, if you will, is Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distractions. So that directly refers to all the technological distractions. So technology, obviously, is a huge part of this book. So I'm sort of wondering, will some people come away and say, well, I'm going to stop using my cell phones so frequently checking text messages and in the morning i will it's a religious and spiritual book as well but in the morning i'll you know say my morning prayers and i'll have a cup of coffee and be more mindful and rather than checking my text messages again obsessively throughout the day i'll just gather my thoughts and maybe interact with my colleagues is that sort of what I what some people will get out of the book? I, I think it is, and I actually think that's a huge step for some people. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things that's that is so powerful about these devices is how how easy they are to use and how delightful they are. How, how you know we get pleasure from them. 
there's a reason we do it. I yeah. mean, this, this is a whole part of the research about how they've actually been engineered to give us the little hits of dopamine that our brain. Yeah, yeah. And, and Josh, just on that, and sorry for cutting you off. Yeah. Um, we, we spoke about that just before we came on the air. I've had, I hope you can see that there, yeah. Dr. Anna Lemke on, uh, on a previous episode, and she, she spoke about that very point, dopamine, you know, how we're overdosing as a nation on digital distractions it's creating depression among some people and she recommends dopamine fasts yeah well and and the word fast is very interesting there right it's it, that's a hint that um there there is a traditional language for describing what we need um a- ancient spiritual writers didn't know about dopamine and they didn't have a theory uh, they didn't have neuroscience like we do but they knew that some ple- ple- pleasure is a good thing it's not that pleasure is bad but pleasure has to be experienced in moderation. And given how we're built, we have a tendency to overindulge in pleasure. So we have to say no to some pleasures, right? It's not that the pleasure is evil. It's that that pleasure in this circumstance is not the best good for me. And it would be better for me to deny myself. By denying myself, I actually strengthen my ability to discern when and under what circumstances I'll indulge in that pleasure, right? Um, we normally think of that virtue, that's the virtue of temperance or moderation. We normally think of that, say, with respect to eating, right? Someone someone who's intemperate in terms of indulging pleasures of the appetite. Obviously, it's relevant to the bodily pleasure of sexual desire as well. We expect people to exercise self-control and not pursue pleasure, you know, at every opportunity, but only under very, very strict circumstances. And what we have to realize is that the delights of of the smartphone, the, the the beauty of the screen, the the joy of of interactions, and and um, the the uh, the gratification of finding out new information and feeling connected, that 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 those those pleasures too need to be regulated. They 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 we we need to be able to say no to them. We need to be able to discipline them, and that might be something as practical as saying. Yeah, during these hours, I will not be in the same room as my smartphone. Or when I'm when I'm doing this kind of work on my computer, I will not have my email screen open. Or uh, these days of the week, I will not check my social media. Or I won't I won't sleep with my phone in my room. Or we will only watch, uh, you know, uh, these shows during during certain times of the uh, of the calendar that, that that fit best with family life. Um, those kinds of things are the ways that that human beings learn to structure their life so that something that is delightful doesn't overwhelm other good things that we need to pay attention to self-regulation as opposed to community regulation or governmental regulation the the book is primarily about personal discipline right um but it does seem to me it, not that I would immediately call for government regulation at the highest level, but it seems to me that people who live a healthy life tend to have people around them that share a, a, a sense of uh, uh, what 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 the purpose of life is and how how the patterns of life should develop. And so, on the local level, I think there actually is a need for um, uh, I don't know if regulation is the right word, but uh, let's say discipline and maybe even uh, best practices best practices or, or to, to use another religious term, there has to be a kind of liturgy 
an, an <laughs> expectation that, 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 that this is how we do things. Just, just to take one example, right? Once upon a time, smartphones were, um, you know, rare and having, having the most cutting edge smartphone was a sign of, of wealth. And, um, uh, but now, now just about everybody in a, in a modern Western society has access to a smartphone. Elite, uh, gatherings, very, very wealthy people, privileged people create space where there are no smartphones. The best private schools have strict rules about when and where students can, can have That's interesting. Phones. I believe the, Steve Jobs, the, the late Steve Jobs, didn't let his kids. That's right. The people who designed it don't, don't want their kids using it. People who go to um, uh, fancy, expensive summer camps, yeah. part of the reason they do that is so that, so that their, their kids have time away from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, this technology and and people who can afford to want to go on retreats and vacations where they can leave this this technology aside. So it's actually it it's become in fact a, a kind of luxury to be free at least at certain certain parts of one's day to be free from from access to digital technology. Why is it a luxury? Because it takes resources to afford that. But I, I'm I'm actually hopeful that those resources themselves will be democratize it's actually not expensive to say no to smartphones yeah uh, public schools could say no to smartphones right now it's only elite private schools that are doing it but it will not be long before some public school districts decide that they are going to say for the sake of the children the, the best the, the best uh science we have from from psychology from childhood development from um the, the social scientists tell us that your kids will learn better if we say no to smartphones so don't bring them to school i think that will happen um, at least in some areas, but it, but it, it's better if it happens more on the local level. I don't I don't want Congress people to be talking about regulating, yeah. I, but I do want school boards to be talking about it. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Joshua Hotchchild, who is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Mount St. Mary's University. Josh is the co-author of the book, A Mind at Peace with Christopher Blum, drawing on the wisdom of the world's greatest thinkers, including Plato and Aristotle. Joshua says, A Mind at Peace, published by Sophia Institute Press, can show us how to cultivate the qualities of character you need to survive in our media-saturated environment. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. How worse is this problem getting? I mean, we've seen the studies and the research, and you hear it anecdotally that it's just getting worse. Uh, there are more kinds of apps coming out. Uh, there are more kinds of widgets. Um, you know, I, I, I probably am missing a lot of the different machines out there, but they're pervasive. And it seems to be getting to a level where, gosh, if there's not some kind of change, we're going to have a serious problem here. Yeah, I, and I don't know if I am an expert enough in the, in the whole landscape to, to say the technology is getting more and more insidious. And I don't know if that's outrunning 
what I take as a sign of hope that people are waking up to this and starting yeah, yeah. to realize that they need to, to take some, uh, some, some steps to guard against it. You know, I was, I was watching a, 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 a TV show uh, recently in which um, people in the, in the sixties were smoking all the time. Right? It <laughs> looks ridiculous to us. I'm watching TV. Uh, they're, 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 well, they're watching TV, but, but like they're, they're smoking in the morning, they're smoking indoors, they're smoking on airplanes, they're smoking at, at, at lunch, they're smoking in the office. And, you know, this looks ridiculous to us now, um, partly because it doesn't seem as cool, but partly because it, we know it's unhealthy and we can't believe that people were just so casually indulging in an unhealthy exercise. And I wonder if in, um, you know, 15 or 20 years, people will look back at, at the, uh, the early 2000s and, and think, you know, isn't that funny that people were, you know, indulging in this digital technology all the time without, without any self-discipline, without saying no, mm -hmm. that they let their kids have these things, that they, they, they would spend this many hours a day on, on these apps. Isn't it crazy that, that we allowed that to happen? Now, I, I don't know that, um, I mean, to, to, to regulate cigarettes actually did take a huge national political yeah. campaign. I don't know that, that that could or should happen with respect to digital technology. It, it's a different kind of insidiousness. It's not just about the health of our lungs. It really is about whether we can think of ourselves as morally responsible, yeah, uh, morally it, responsible agents. I mean, it seems it seems plausible that there could be a backlash coming, and it'll start from the top, the elite schools, and the um, you mentioned these summer camps and private elite institutions. They shut off yeah. the technology but there's another side to all of this technology that bothers people you know facebook's and so on the 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 control of these social platforms and twitter and all that is going to have a new owner we know and then it gets into this whole idea of the polarization in our society you know these platforms are used for sharing political opinions and some people get censored some people get tossed off i mean that's one aspect of the platforms that's insidious in its own way. It is. I mean, I, and, and I think um, it, it's good that people are becoming more aware of the ways in which um, they're subject to uh, political manipulation through uh, social media. Um, even people who aren't actually active on social media are subject to this because they, the, the news is now, the news often follows what's talked about on social media. So, yeah. so you don't have to be on Twitter or Facebook to, to feel the effects of Twitter and Facebook in political discourse. In other words, uh, to stop you there, Josh, uh, you'll see, you might turn on the evening news, um, so-and-so um, political candidate said, put out a tweet tonight condemning some action. That becomes news. Yes, yeah. And, and so there's, there's definitely a, a, a trickle down effect where a lot of journalists will tell you that they feel like social media drives, uh, the headlines now that they have to play catch up and, and, and feel, they feel responsible for keeping up with, with social media. Um, and I also think more information is coming out about the psychological uh, effects and how, how the technology has been engineered in specific ways, essentially to make us addicted, um, to, 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 uh, to, to use the the actual biological addiction mechanisms to uh, to make us dependent on this technology. Um, I guess what what I uh, want to emphasize about the approach that Chris and I took in our book um, is that whatever we learn about those 
specifics, the political manipulation, um, the, 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 uh, the psychological manipulation. Um, and, and we will, we will continue to learn about that. It will not, uh, do anything to undermine the basic spiritual wisdom that, that is available to us already from, from the philosophical and, and Christian traditions about what it means to live a good life. And the challenge of digital technology is about how can we live a good life with this technology? Um, and, and, and we think we have the resources to answer the challenge as long as we're intentional and conscious about drawing on those resources. I'd like to ask you a little bit in a moment about your conversion, which you brought up earlier. Any response reaction to your book in church circles, in parishes, among bishops? Wow, you guys have hit a great spiritual nail on the head here. Oh, um, we've been we've been very gratified by the reception of the book. The the foreword is written by Father Paul Scalia. We're very honored that he that, um, wrote the foreword. But um, it's uh, we know that it's been um, used. It's been gifted by seminary rectors to seminarians. We know um, at least one bishop who bought a copy for every priest in his diocese. We know that it's been used for um, like a, a teacher formation retreat um, on. Uh, college campuses and, and and at high schools, I believe this past fall it was given to every freshman at Ave Maria University in Florida, and, and there were there were a series of, of talks or reflections about the book hmm. um, there, um, and and I've heard um, of a number of cases of it just being used as a as a kind of um, book group choice in in uh, a, a family book uh, re- reading group or a parish reading group. That's exactly what we hoped to, to be able to do is provide some people with as accessible a book as that. You know, I, I mentioned Chris and I are both philosophers and we've written, you know, the expected kind of scholarly things that, that would be read by other people who have a certain kind of intellectual formation and training. We know how to do that kind of writing, but we didn't want, we didn't want to do a, a scholarly research on mm. this. We, we wanted to, draw on what we've learned through scholarly research and, and share with, mm. with a, a, a wider audience. So it's not an academic book, even though it's written by a couple of academics. And we've been very gratified that, that based on the response, um, it, it's, been, it's been very well received and, and served that purpose. It will appeal to a wide audience? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about the book that, um, that we're writing from a Catholic perspective and Sophia mm. Institute Press is a Catholic press. Um, we, we quote, um, you know, Catholic authorities and we, we reference saints and, um, you know, we, we, we're, we're not trying to hide the fact that that's, that's some of the resources that we're drawing on. But, um, a friend of mine actually commented on the book, you know, um, it, it would be possible to edit the book into a secular edition. I'm not particularly interested in doing that, but it would be possible. One, one, one could talk about the main insights of the book in terms that appeal to um, philosophical reason apart from the theological specifics. Um, we're, 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 we're drawing on a, a basic classical understanding of the soul and its powers and uh, the ideas of virtue and happiness and uh, what, what it means to live an ordered life. And yeah, it absolutely could appeal as, as long as long as a reader is not offended by references to uh, saints or the church, um, it, it can it, it, it can definitely serve a, a secular or non-religious reader. I like the 
Note in the foreword, St. Augustine's definition of peace is defined as the tranquility of order. Yes. And then uh, in the same foreword, goes on to say that we live in a schizophrenic age of distractions on you know on one side and then this desire for peace on the other side. You're going to be constantly distracted with social media um, and I guess the old-fashioned TV. I you say old-fashioned TV. That was the first big distraction of our modern age, if you will. Um, in balance and done right, you know, all that stuff is, is good. You're not Luddites, by the way, right? Just confirm that no. you're not anti-technology. No, no okay. I mean, I, I hope that's obvious. <laughs> I'm not getting rid of my mobile or we no. wouldn't be able to do this today, Josh. If <laughs> any of your listeners want to connect with me on Twitter, I, I would I would be delighted to have Well, I'll be connecting with you after, right after this. Very good. So, but you know, it's it's a bit balanced, right? I mean, that's it. If you do it in a, in a very balanced way, and what that might mean different things for different people. I mean, historically, every technology has posed challenges to how people live together, mm. because technology technology increases our power in some way. But mm. if our power is increased significantly in some way, it enables us to live according to new social structures and patterns that we hadn't lived before, which might mean that old social structures and patterns are, are eroded or even totally replaced. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when, when, when automobiles first came out, some people thought they were demonic. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't think automobiles are actually demonic, but <laughs> they have had a, uh, a tremendous impact on how human beings organize themselves in, in, uh communities and it hasn't all been good i mean there, there has been a cost to the widespread adoption of the automobile and we could go back further you know there were people who were afraid that the invention of the printing press mm -hmm. would disrupt um uh, orders of authority and understanding that developed when books were rare and expensive and and institutionally supported and now they're democratized and they uh, are more now. I you, you can see behind me. I have an office full of books, and I'm I'm glad that I can get cheap books. But this comes at a cost of another kind of culture. Um, and and we are in the middle of a of of a, another great transition. Uh, that will have tremendous costs. And when when people are in the middle of that transition, sometimes the costs are uh, either not noticed or they're felt but difficult to articulate because the loudest voices are the ones who are talking about all the new great things we can do. All, all the benefits that come from the adoption of the technology. And, and what Chris and I want to do is be part of the conversation that takes a balanced stock of what, what, are, what are the costs along with the benefits? What, 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 what are the things that we absolutely don't want to lose altogether? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you and I can have a Zoom call, but I don't want to start to live life entirely on the metaverse. I don't want to wear VR goggles all day. So there has to be... <laughs> There has to be yeah. a line that we'll draw somewhere between um, me agreeing to have uh, a 45 minute long or yeah. hour long conversation with you by video and uh, deciding that I'm going to, you know, enter the pod and, and live in, in the virtual reality for the next several months and, and get my nourishment intravenously. Like that's, that would be a bridge too far, but we, we need as a, as a society, we need to develop the way to talk about why why one thing might be okay, but another thing isn't. You just said a moment ago, where it's, it's a society in transition. Society, I guess, always has been an, in transition, but this is a specific transition to what? Well, um, we, we, we don't know yet. We're, we're, we're in the process of making, you know, how, how is it that human beings will live with powerful, portable digital technology? We don't know yet. We're, we're, 
we're we're trying it out, and this is the first generation. I don't know where this it's, is going. It's very young. I mean, um, you and I remember life without this technology. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I just came. I from know lots of people from where I come from grew up without televisions. You know, there was no but, media. But at I just all. came from teaching a, a class of college freshmen, so they're eighteen, nineteen years old. They most of them probably had smartphones when they were in middle school, seventh, sixth, maybe fifth grade. They don't remember life without it. Yeah. So, so you and I have to help them think about what it is that they they are entering, and what it is that not, they might be missing that you and I were able to take for granted until ten or fifteen years ago. With their children, their children will 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 not have that connection to a, a different way of life. So we ha we have to we have to be very intentional about talking about it while while the experiment is taking place, so that we can make sure that. That we don't succumb to uh, the, the the worst temptations of it. The whole thing's remarkable. I, it's been a while since we visited Dutch country Lancaster and saw the Amish out in the fields. And, but it always back then, twenty years ago, I think it was I remember them out in the fields with the horse and buggies, and they had their own kind of uh, protocol for how they used any kind of technology. It was different yeah. grades of it. I'd love to go back and see what the reaction is to digital media i don't know if you know has anybody studied that and kind of the impact? I, i'm sure people have i don't i'm i'm not aware firsthand and my understanding is that there's different different kinds of communities that that um set their own their own standards, standards they draw yeah. their own line in the sand and you know I, I think it's important for people to realize it's not it's not that they think that the technology that they say no to is intrinsically evil they're making a judgment though that the technology that they say no to would make it harder for them to do things that they think is valuable and that they care for. So that an Amish farmer knows it would be easier to plow his field with a, a diesel powered tractor. But he also knows that if he plowed his field with a diesel powered tractor, he would miss out on a certain meditative time and collaborative time, say working with neighbors or with his sons out in the field. And so a certain social life, a certain kind of relationship, a certain meaning of fatherhood would be lost. If you yeah. adopt the tractor, we need to do the same thing with digital technology. We need to ask ourselves, you know, what patterns of behavior and what kinds of relationships and what social roles are being replaced by this technology? And is there, are there things that I don't want to be replaced that I won't let go of? Yeah. Well, it sort of kind of brings us full circle in the sense that while well, you have the Amish on the one hand, which can live that life depending on which level they're at because of their community standards, but the community standards we have in an urban area or in the rest of America, let's say, puts a lot of pressure on the individual to get with the program. I mean, the kids go to school. Oh, if you're not on, if you don't have a phone, we can't send you the text message that class has been let out early or something. You are forced into it. There's that kind of peer pressure and um, institutional pressure. I think that's true. There, there is there is a lot of pressure to to cooperate with what's seen as as the the dominant trend but on the other hand i mean most most families uh maybe without theorizing it at the level that you and i are trying to most families do make deliberate decisions for the sake of the kind of uh lifestyle that they want to have with their children right so um, some families will make a decision to live in an urban area so they have certain resources available or 
course, you know, if you if you don't if you don't like commuting, you might decide to live in an area where you can walk to work. Um, other others will make a decision that they they want the the different kinds of resources that are available in a more rural lifestyle, or they they will say, well, we would like our kids to be going to school with this. Uh, this kind of community, right? We, we, we want them to have access to and, and exposure to these kinds of experiences. So we'll, we'll even pick up and move so that our kids can go to, to this school as opposed to that school. So people are already used to doing, make, making life choices so that the shape of their daily life fits better with their understanding of, of what a healthy family or what, what a healthy childhood would look like. And I think people are starting to do that also with digital technology, they, that they're, they're thinking about what choices could I make so that we don't let this encroach. I mean, I know families who've decided not to have Wi-Fi at home uh, because that will make it easier for them to have the kind of family life that they want. They're not Amish, but to mm. a lot of people, that might sound as weird as being Amish, right? Not yeah, yeah in today's world. Um, and I know families who have said no to smartphones, even through high school, even if that means that, that their kids aren't able to communicate with all of their friends who have smartphones. It just they, they were able, they they made that choice or they sent their kids to a school where it was easier to make that choice I mean it's a swamp out there on social media anyway there's a lot of questionable content that really no parent should let their kids watch not alone adults there is there is and actually I mean um, Chris and I in in our book we, we sort of take for granted that um, that our readers will know that there's some stuff that's just uh, bad in and of itself right? Yeah. Uh, so the book doesn't uh, spend a lot of time, for instance, talking about pornography. We assume that our readers are 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 going to understand already that that's something that that isn't good under any circumstance. Um, I think the more challenging thing is to realize that some things that can be good in moderation are still bad in overindulgence. Mm. There's nothing wrong with having a Facebook page where you keep in touch no. with your family. That's yeah, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. You thing. find yourself spending so much time on Facebook that you have stopped being a good neighbor. And a good or a good father and mother to your own children, then you have then you have to take a step back and ask what 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 discipline should I exercise over myself so that I don't spend too much time on Facebook? That I think is a harder question. Yeah, of course. Well, some of the upside of technology is this uh, how it brings some families closer together. You know, you have a Facebook yeah. page that there's a wedding in the family, you post those wonderful photos. You can go on WhatsApp. We have some family members on vacation in Italy. We're able to interact. They're sending us photos. You can make phone calls with families overseas. I mean, all of that stuff's good. It is good. It is good. And yet we always have to ask ourselves what 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 costs might be might might we be forgetting or what, what might might we be missing? During during the recent pandemic, for instance, right? Um, I think a lot of us were grateful that we had technology that allowed us to to keep in touch with people and to keep certain kinds of activities going virtually. So Zoom, you know, every, mm. almost everybody um, has had experience with Zoom now, whereas three years ago, they, they wouldn't have. Um, so I'm I, a part of me is grateful for Zoom. But on the other hand, if we think about sort of secondary and tertiary effects, um, is it also the case that Zoom made it easier for um, there to be stricter pandemic uh, shutdowns than there absolutely had to be? Mm -hmm. uh, is it the case that we became too reliant on Zoom, and so we've lost the the sense that it's actually important to gather in person? Um, now, now that now that my colleagues know that um, uh, you know we can we can have Zoom for a meeting, or that my students know that they can Zoom into class, um, 
I think something's been lost about the idea of like a kind of sacred in-person meeting, like where everybody is together and it's expected that you'll do what, whatever it, it takes to, to, to be there in person. Right. So that even, even when there are blessings, I think it's important for us to account for how those blessings are, are reordering the other things that, that we used to do and, and whether there are losses. Absolutely agree with you, uh, Josh. You know, certain aspects of social media, the Zoom you mentioned, it can be a cover up, a, a camouflage for reality. You know, I'm here, although I have a good sense of your dynamics and personality, but we would have probably, I guess, in reality, if we met in your office, it would even be a different sort of a dialogue. But this is beautiful regardless. I'm very grateful for this <laughs> this time together. I wish I could actually shake your hand. Um, uh, I wish I could look you in the eyes and actually know it was your eyes and not an image of your eyes. But yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll do that someday. You're a convert and so is your co-author. Tell us about that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give my own, um, my own story. I, I was not raised with um, uh, any, any kind of religious formation. I, I became a Christian in college, and that's, that itself is kind of a long story, but um, I, I became interested in, in questions that, that led me to um, seek answers that I could only find in Christianity. Um, uh, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church and sort of grew into the Anglican tradition. In graduate school, I was studying uh, especially medieval philosophy, so I was sort of learning more about the Catholic intellectual tradition. And soon after graduate school, I was in the, I was in a situation that made me ask a question that I hadn't really asked uh, while I was in graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, which is, you know, in what sense am I uh, a Protestant or in what sense do I object to Catholicism? Um, and that together with uh, an increasing awareness of desire to commune with Christ in the Eucharist made me realize that I wanted to be received in the Catholic Church. So I, I was I was received. I, I, I converted to Christianity around age nineteen or twenty. Okay, um, and I was I was received in the Catholic Church um, around age thirty. I, I've I've heard it said, and I see the evidence. Some uh, converts sometimes are the most enthusiastic and passionate Catholics. Well, we're we're sometimes annoying for our zealotry, but. Um, <laughs> There's something, I mean, the, the, the church needs both people who have the, the, the authentic formation uh, from childhood, but it also, I, I, I would like to think that the church benefits from the kind of um, intentional and, and deliberate uh, embrace of the church from those who, who were not um, uh, gifted with, with it from childhood. So You have your book out there. Uh, it's getting... A good reception. Um, where do you see this going from here? It's opening up a debate. People are starting to look at the technology more closely. They had been previously, but this seems to sort yeah. of take it in another direction. And where will that end up? Um, uh, that's a great question. And Chris and I have talked about whether we would, um, you know, reissue the book with a new forward. There's a there's a way in which we we knew that um, when you're writing about technology, you have to be careful because if you make references to particular forms of technology that can change or evolve. So um, we made sure to write the book in a way that it, it's not its not actually um, sort of rooted in any one particular incarnation of technology. And, and, and we hope that there's a, a kind of timeless quality to its, to its discussion. 
Um, but I could imagine um, that, um, you know, within the next few years with um, increasing attention to just how intentionally the media has been designed to um, sort of grasp our, grasp our spiritual energy. That's what, that's what uh, the psychologists mean when they talk about dopamine. I mean, Mm. they're instruments of temptation and they've been engineered as instruments of temptation. Mm. Um, And so I could imagine um, updating in light of, in light of that. And also in light of new iterations of how, how immersive this technology will get. I mean, I don't, I don't think virtual reality is um, all that uh, common or popular yet, but you know, Facebook rebranded as meta because it's making a big, a big bet on the future of um, immersive uh, digital spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think some some iteration of that will become more common maybe maybe primarily first for people who are interested in video games but you know maybe maybe if we do a podcast in five years maybe there will be a, a three-dimensional hologram of you in my room or i will have a, or i'll have a headset <laughs> I, hope I don't scare you uh, you know uh, we, we don't know how this how yeah, this will that's i've seen i've seen some of the um i call it s- uh, sky fiction or whatever but it won't be fiction it's going to be reality yeah, perhaps yeah, there's people there are people working on it but I, but I mean, I guess there's a part of me that's very curious about where it will go. There's a part of me that, that would like to keep up with the best uh, news about, about the latest developments. Um, but I even want to keep that curiosity in check and, and cultivate the kind of hopeful confidence that however, however it develops, the, the resources that we need to address the problem are already available to us. That there, there is nothing new under the sun. We're not going to learn something new about the nature of virtue. We're not going to learn something new about um, the, the ultimate nature of human happiness. We, we have to remind ourselves how to cultivate virtue and how to achieve happiness in new circumstances. But, but we have the resources for talking about that already at our fingertips. Let's get together, certainly in five years, if you update the book or before then, and let's try to meet in person at your convenience sometime. That would uh, be Josh, wonderful. Yeah. Josh, the name of your book is A Mind at Peace. You're the co-author. And, I don't uh, know if this is showing up on your screen. But absolutely. I'll yeah, we'll, we'll put that up on our uh, YouTube page uh, when this gets uh, done. And it's Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. Say hello to your co-author. Josh, thank you for being on my show. John, I really appreciate this. Thanks for the conversation. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.